From Wall Street to Main Street, there are stories to be told. Where knowledge learned on the street is as powerful as knowledge learned on the streets. This is the Financial Recon Podcast, where we introduce you to the people, places, and things that have helped shape our environment and will help shape yours. Welcome to the conversation. All right. Well, I'm here with uh, Dr. Brad Klontz here on the Financial Recon Podcast. Brad, thanks for joining us. I'm really stoked about um, having you on. Um, you know, just a little background for my uh, listeners. A couple of years ago when I was attending Crate and I uh, had to use my GI Bill and I wanted to get every dime out of the government I could like anyone would. <laughs> and I, I, I came to the end of my program a little uh, the investment management and financial analysis program a little uh, quickly. And I was like, oh man, where else can I go? And so I did some due diligence and I stumbled upon this behavioral finance and financial psychology class. And I was like, you know, I don't know. Is this going to be just like, you know, in in the advisor world, there's alphabet soup, right? Like Mm -hmm. everywhere. Everybody seems to have a designation that you don't know. But I will tell you, it was one of the greatest blessings that I ever took these courses because it has taught me so much, not only about myself, my relationship with money, my family's relationship with money, I think it has been invaluable to help my clients and help them progress along the way. So thank you. Um, thank you for putting that course and that program together. And um, I'm excited that you're here with the new book, Money Mammoth, that's available out there. Um, it's a great read. I encourage anyone to uh, to check it out. But first, first and foremost, I wanted to kind of set the basis, the foundation of our discussion today around the difference between behavioral finance and financial psychology, because I think a lot of people get some of that confused. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty confusing. I mean, essentially, both theories are really built on this basic assumption that when it comes to money, we're all insane. (laughs) Um, We're all (laughs) wired to do everything wrong. And I, this is such an important assumption. And actually what's so interesting is if people get this, it can actually transform their entire life. Just understanding this, that your, your natural approach, your instincts, how you tend to look at things just as an average human being, we're wired to do it all wrong. That's why, that's why when I hear people say, Oh, you know, what's wrong with these people that won't save their money and won't invest their money. I mean, I, Ironically, it's the people who are good savers and good investors. They're the ones who are a bit unusual. And you don't have to look very far past the average American in terms of statistics. I mean, it's like we're wired to just not delay gratification. You actually have to overcome your desires to do this. You have to overcome your impulses to not buy stocks when they're high and sell them when they're low. You're wired to do that. And so I think both theories are really based on this fundamental understanding that our money problems aren't because we're crazy, lazy, or stupid. It's because we're just wired to mishandle money. And so behavioral finance looks at those inborn cognitive biases we all have. And most of the research has been done around investing behavior. So as I mentioned, you know, that that impulse to buy high, that desire to, to, to sell low, you know, the, the, to not change like status quo bias, confirmation bias. There's an entire list of biases for um, all those nerds out there who want to read it around wh- how we're just wired to do things wrong and just 
you know, destroy ourselves around Fo- money. Follow like knowledge. everybody buying GameStop or exactly like look when you see a stock soar up like that, you know, like you feel this desire, like oh gosh, I should get in, right? It's like that herd right. instinct. It's everybody's doing it. I, maybe I should do it. And by the way, this is just human nature. Like I don't care if you have a PhD in finance, you're going to have that impulse. Um, I get that it's crazy, but should I be jumping on board right now? Um, so this is just how we're wired to do it. And then financial psychology looks at you more specifically around great. So you got this mindset that's screwed up around investing that, that, you know, you can work to overcome, but what was it like for you growing up around money? What did your parents teach you about money? So as human beings were wired to do it all wrong, but you as an individual have had very specific training growing up around money that is having a profound impact on your life. And most of us aren't aware of it. Okay. That kind of leads into when you mentioned about the money, our relationship with money and our families and so forth. You know, I know one of the things that we did in your classes uh, was examine our personal money story and how we got to those money scripts. Can you just fill in a little bit more about what the money story is and specifically how that translates to the money scripts? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, in our writing, we we refer to it as financial flashpoints, like these experiences we have around money. Um, for many of us, they happen directly to us. So like for me with my parents, um, they, they divorced when I was two. There was constant conflict around money. So as a little kid, I, I was sort of like, wow, you know, money is this thing that people fight about. Mm-hmm. It's this belief that I, so this association I have with money. I also grew up in a family that was lower income. And so this belief like, oh, there's not enough money. That, you know, maybe there'll never be enough money. These, these are the beliefs we have based on those experiences. And what's so fascinating is as an adult, you will see these play out in your life. Oh, no. You, you know, if you grew up poor, oh, there's not enough money. This is a belief that actually um, leads to a lot of people saving money. <laughs> you know, if there's not enough, I need to save for the future. But you work with clients like this. I work with clients like this who have enough money. But they, they're never they're never um, satisfied. And by that, I mean, on a deep psychological relaxation level. They're anxious. They're worried. They're up at night. And as a professional, you're like going, wow, man, you don't really need to be that worried. You don't need to be suffering with that kind of anxiety objectively, but they have that mindset because that's how they grew up. And now what's interesting about these financial flashpoints, sometimes they can happen generations ago. So sometimes it's something Mm -hmm. that happened to your grandparents or your great grandparents, and there's all this anxiety around money or, or whatever it is. And it's playing out in your life and your children's lives and, it, and you have no idea. You have no idea what even that story was. It's just this collective approach to money that a family can have. Would you say like a good example of that is like boomers who experienced their parents, grandparents being mattress savers and not trusting the banks and so forth? Absolutely. That's a perfect example. Um, when In my money story, that was what happened to my grandpa. So he went to the bank one day and, you know, the bank's closed and all your money's gone. You know, he was a young man and I just tried to put myself in that position. Like that's unbelievable. That's unbelievable for you to just go to your financial institution tomorrow and it's all your money's gone and you can't get anyone to talk to you just to imagine the emotional impact. And so of course, then it all started to make sense to me when I learned that um, because he never put a dollar in the bank the rest of his life. So he was one of those mattress savers. He kept his money in a lockbox in the attic. That was it. Never put a bank, never put a dollar in the bank the rest of his life lived into his nineties. And so really powerful experiences. So as culture and as generations, we have these types of experiences 
And they obviously lead to, you know, an entire generation of hoarders, right? For that, um, that group of people experienced that. And then the baby boomers came along and they're like, we don't want to live like this. And then, so then we had an entire generation of overspenders <laughs> who are responding yeah. to that experience. So anyway, th- these things play out culturally too. I just wonder if, you know, well, obviously 2008 led, has led to its own shell-shocked generation. I would think that we're going to see that come out of here out of COVID, unfortunately, too. You're going to have the similar uh, shell shock. But to, you know, to how that financial trauma, like you, you mentioned about the bank being closed, it's interesting, right? Because uh, similarly, I was talking with my grandmother, and when she was born, she was very young. But my great grandfather lost his house in the Depression. And you would have thought that like something traumatic like that would have altered her and her siblings money scripts in a way that would have had a very negative relationship around money. And I'd say it's the complete opposite. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And what she told me was she never heard her parents like really argue over it. They just buckled down and did what they had to do to take care of their family and the, the generational ripple effect that that has had when I went back and examined that was just amazing. It's, it's so wild to see how that all comes together. Absolutely. And, and people will grow up and have a very similar experience, but they walk away with very, very different messages. And so um, yeah. I've definitely seen this where people grew up poor and, and the message they have is there'll never be enough money. And so then they become like workaholics, savers, extremely conscientious cu- coupon cu- um, cutters. And by the way, these are a lot of our clients, right? I'm, I'm just guessing because <laughs> they, they tend to have a higher net worth, right? They, they're very right. vigilant around money. But that same belief, there'll never be enough money can lead to the opposite where people have a learned helplessness is what we call it in psychology, which is sort of like, no matter what I do, it's not going to matter. And so then what you can see people do then is spend all the money they get. Um, they, they try to rack up credit, use it because there's this belief that no matter what I do, I'm never going to get ahead. And so the exact mm-hmm. same experience can lead to totally different behaviors. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, one of the interesting things that you point out in the book is about knowing how your money fits your values and your goals and your world of view. That, that is <laughs> definitely something that I think, you know, if you're getting ready to get married or something that is very important, you know, my, my wife and I, we got married in the Catholic church. We did that pre, I call it the pre-wedding thing. And I wish they had some of these little tidbits for us because it would have made our money conversations a lot smoother. But one of the things I, f- I think is important is Obviously, you need to each know your values, your goals, um, so forth. But what happens if you find yourself, you know, like my wife and I have a disconnect on our money scripts. What kind of, what would be your next step or your approach there? How could I best address that? Yeah, so... So the, the weird thing, I think, is when couples have the exact same beliefs around money. <laughs> Again, that's a little <laughs> bit strange um, because we grew up in different houses, or at least ideally you did. Um, you grew up in a different environment, a different family system. And so it's like, look, uh, you know, the fact if you agree on everything, that's the weird part. And, you know, because money is the biggest thing that couples fight about. It's the biggest thing that couples divorce over in the early years of marriage because 
to your point, they never had that money conversation. And all of a sudden they get surprised that, um, wait, you don't see the world exactly the way I do. And so when I work with couples, um, I, I always encourage them to go back and have that conversation that, you know, you wish you had had in your premarital experience with the Catholic church, where you can actually talk about like what it was like for you growing up around money. What was your socioeconomic status? How did you feel about it? What are your financial goals? What, what are you embarrassed about in terms of your previous behaviors around money? Like, what are you aspiring to be? Um, and so th- it's just such an important conversation because we, um, chances are we're on very different pages from our spouse around something, if not more mm-hmm. than one thing. And many of us don't even know our own story. Like here we're, we're talking about money stories and, and people who are listening to this. Maybe they've never even thought about this. This is what I find to be true for most people because we don't talk about money. And so we're not even aware of our own stories, let alone our partner's stories. And then what tends to happen is, and studies show that couples, like, so if a couple gets into therapy, couples therapy, they have on average, they've been fighting for seven years around something. Wow. And so it's like, whoa, you know, that's a lot of years to build up resentments and to get more polarized. Cause that's the other thing that happens. Like if I'm a saver and my wife is a spender, my saving impulse gets really exaggerated all of a sudden I'm saying stuff that I don't even believe because I'm trying to get her to save and hear me. And the same thing happens, you know, and then she might feel constrained and she might feel like she wants to spend more to sort of exert her um, independence or whatever. And these, that, these things can start to get really polarized and weird. Um, and so having that conversation early can really, really be helpful. And I'll say this too, if you're struggling in your relationship with money, it's actually kind of normal. Um, and, but also to try to get oh, some yeah, help, absolutely. try to talk to somebody who can, um, help you sort it out. Yeah. I, and I think that's, you know, a failure just of society is the stigma we put on asking for help. It's, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of maturity to, to seek out someone. Um, you know, it, it, one of the things that, you know, also was pointed out in the book that I found very true just to my life is, you know, those, those money discussions, those money conversations are always evolving. So it's good to revisit it every so often. And like in our case, my wife just got a new job and she's been working with me, helping me out for the last decade. Now she's going to be transitioning. There's going to be some, you know, different benefits and things like that. And we're, we're forced to re-engage that conversation. And I think it's very helpful that we had some of those conversations years ago to kind of work through, like, you know, the old stereotype of everybody had to have their own checking or the, when you're married, we have to have one checking account Mm -hmm. and the psychology of learning just how having a separate checking account could be so powerful. It's not financial infidelity. It's just people wanting to have some, autonomy. And I, I found that really, really powerful. So like I'm kind of w- going through the, some of these stages you're, you're talking about in the book. And I just would say, if you are having those issues and you're, you know, you've been seemingly battling these things out for years, who should you seek out? I mean, it, it doesn't seem, you know, like a financial, a financial advisor, financial planner is, got their role, but is this something that they should tackle? I think that financial planners who are, have been doing it for a while, you know, they, they sort of understand that couples might not be on the same page with every 
particular part of their financial plan. I mean, again, it would be a miracle if they were, right? I mean, it's, it's unusual that there's going to be some disagreements, there's going to be some negotiation. Um, and, and really, like my father said something to me once that when I was younger, that was the most unromantic thing I'd ever heard in my life. And I was and he said that, you know, a successful relationship is really a series of successful negotiations. Um, you know, that's not very sexy, right? But but it's actually true. Not going to make a Hallmark card. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's not very romantic, but it's also true, right? So right, right. You know, essentially, we're going to have to negotiate and find win-wins on, on all of these areas of our financial life. And so financial planners, I think, can be really helpful in getting sort of another set of eyes on, hey, this is what I think you guys should do on a, on a broader scale. And the good mm-hmm. ones won't take sides, right? They'll just be like, hey, this is my objective opinion. Um but then if, if you really can't make it through that conversation, and again, I, I think the conversation should start with what it was like for you growing up, how you felt about it, you know, what your mother taught you, what your dad taught you. And your job is to listen to your sp- spouse and partner in a loving, gentle way, and, and they do the same for you. I've actually found that experience to actually help loosen up people for the negotiation part that comes next. Um, but I think that people shouldn't hesitate to get, get into a couple's see a couple's therapists. You know, I know there's a lot of angry men who are going to hear me say that. Um, and look, I don't like going to couples therapy. Let me just be really blunt with you. Um, but I go <laughs> because it's helpful. And my wife and I, we're both psychologists and we'll probably always be going at various times. Um, just to have another party, we can air out kind of what's what you're struggling with, what you guys are um, dealing with. Um, I, I'm obviously a huge fan of therapy, even though I don't like going. Did I already say that? Um, because it's really helpful. I mean, it turns out it, it tends to be helpful. So couples therapist or somebody who's a specialist in financial therapy um, I, and, and financial planners, I think they all play a role. So do you think that, or I, I guess, how how would you identify a therapist as being versed enough in financial therapy, you know, because you don't want to obviously see, you don't want the general practitioner necessarily if it's really an embedded financial issue. Is there any good ways of identifying those resources? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge, right? Because a lot of therapists aren't so great with money themselves. I have found that um, family and couples therapists, like if somebody's a couples therapist, <clears throat> they, trust me, they've talked about money because <laughs> money is like the biggest <laughs> thing that couples fight about. Um, so they probably have had some success in helping people negotiate disagreements around all sorts of areas, right? So I right. think that's a that's a good place to start. You could also look at places like the Financial Psychology Institute, which I'm part of, and the Financial mm-hmm. Therapy Association, and you could just Google those. Um, and you can find practitioners who have been trained on the psychology side. You know, obviously you've been trained. Um, and so there, there are people out there who are more comfortable having those types of conversations and helping you with family stuff too. Like, you know, what do I do for my kids? What should I be a watch out for? Cause a lot of us are worried about our kids, you know, not wanting to spoil them um, on the wealthy side of things, you know? So there's always concerns around kids and family members. And speaking of kids, I'll, I'll share this, uh, you know, in the book, you talk about a story about training or teaching your kids about money. And I read that story and I said, man, I'm, I am making this mistake right here and i'm the i'm the type of person who i give my kids the money and they are like oh we want to go to target and buy legos and it's like you could just hear the nails on the chalkboard and i'm cringing and i'm like well why don't you give it to me and i'll uh put it into your safe and you know reading that was a nice way for me to say and i said to my wife Kristen, i said you know i need to uh I need to let them fall on their face a little more 
to kind of, you know, learn that hard way. So, yeah, you know, an allowance is sort of an opportunity for you to create the reality for your children. Like, it's almost like we're all swimming around in water and we're not even aware of what reality is. And so when you if you structure your allowance with kids, and you're like, here's your allowance. This percentage goes into saving. This percentage, we're giving it away. This percentage you're investing and you can spend this much. What happens is when they become adults, they're like, oh yeah, well, this is what you do with money. <laughs> you do these things, <laughs> you know? Um, but again, yeah. like it's human nature for us to like, you know, if I gave your kid a bag of marshmallows, you know, what, what are the odds they're going to just wait and eat them next week? You know, no, they're going to eat them right now. Like this is they're already we, gone. As soon as you said they're it. already <laughs> gone, this is how we're wired. And so um, for me as a parent too, it's, it's, and of course I'm screwing up left and right myself, but it's trying to be conscious of what's, what, what are they learning by what I'm showing them? Or if I'm giving their money and, and they just spend it, is that what they're learning? Are they learning? That's what you do with money. You get it and you spend it. Cause that would sort of be the logical lesson, right? So how can right. I structure lessons that fit with my values and my wife's values and our goals? That that's always the question to have in mind. Yeah. And that's, and you know, part of me, the analytic in me, read Jeremy Siegel's book, The Future for Investors, which talks about, you know, compounding dividends and so forth. And so that side of me took over. And when you read about the other side, the psychological side of it, it's like, okay, maybe I need to take that step back. You know, it's good to teach them about investing and reinvesting and things like that, but they need to fall on that face once or twice and that way, if they ever got an inheritance, as we joke with our oldest, he doesn't go to Target and blow it on a, a tractor trailer of Legos. <laughs> right. Well, my son, it's funny. I, I took him to the bank, old school. You know, I wanted him to go in there, bring his money, open up an account. And then um, uh, about a month ago, he's like, Dad, how come this isn't growing? <laughs> and I'm like, it's a really good point, son. It's just sitting in a savings account. I think it's time for us to, you know, open up an investing account for you. Um, <laughs> welcome, welcome to the generation of uh, no interest. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Awesome. This has been great. So I look forward to, uh, you know, taking this conversation um, a little bit further. I'm really pleased that we're going to be able to do a uh, continuation of this episode. So we're going to have episode two with Dr. Brad Klontz coming out very shortly so uh, make sure to uh stay tuned to spotify and um your other podcast networks as it'll be dropping uh relatively shortly thanks for joining us today to continue the conversation visit us at our blog financial-recon.com appearances do not constitute endorsement of flagship wealth management group lpl financial or any other entity discussed in this program securities and advisory services offered through lpl financial a registered investment advisor member finra sipic the opinions voiced are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. This information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax or legal advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific situation with a qualified tax or legal advisor. Dr. Brad Klontz is not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Flagship Wealth Management Group.